Hello, everyone. Uh, hello, everyone on Zoom. Sorry if you are muted. It's just to make sure that everything works in the logistical manner. We will unmute you at the end for you to be able to ask questions. So today, Laura Tavares and myself, the two moderators, will please, please welcome Nabila Jamshed and Karina Grosheva today from the United Nations. So we'll give you a quick introduction into both of them and then we'll dive into some questions. So Nabila Jamshed is an international security and global governance professional currently working with the United Nations. She is also a former UN peacekeeper as well as WMD disarmament professional. She has worked for the United Nations Educational, Cultural and Scientific Organization and with the Asian Development Bank on regional cooperation in South Asia. While with the UN, she co-authored the UN Environment Program. So please welcome Nabila Jamshed. Thank you for being here, Nabila, today. Now I'll let Laura introduce Karina Grosheva. Hello, Karina Grosheva. Uh, Karina is a social entrepreneur uh, and UN data and technology consultant. Furthermore, she's also a founder and CEO of Takada, a company that aims at bringing technology and highly trained image annotation teams to build computer vision in aerial imagery and build maps. At the United Nations, she has coordinated projects across six countries in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, focused on social uh, innovation for sustainable development. Her specialties are artificial intelligence, computer vision, social innovation, internet, international development, and humanitarian work. Thanks so much, Karen, for being here as well. Thank you so much. So now that we have both of you here, let's start. We're gonna ask some questions to Nabila, some questions to Karina and both. So our first question is for Nabila. With your breadth of experience, we want to know how do you navigate the multilateral space in organizations working on disarmament, peacekeeping and the sustainable development goals? Uh, thank you, Celeste. Um, thank you everyone at the Climate Action Club uh, at INSEAD for having me today. Uh, it's very important we are having this conversation about multilateral spaces in what is the 75th year of the signing of the United Nations Charter. And unlike back in the 1940s, I think multilateralism has become about so much more than diplomatic trade-offs. It's become so much more than a social contract of Westphalian states agreeing to carry out certain promises through a set of you know, conventions and treaties. Uh, and an organization that meets kind of at a headquarter level in New York uh, once every now and then. Uh, we've gone through so many of these words in the, in the very introductions that you gave for, for me and, and Karina as well. We're talking about sustainable development, disarmament, peacekeeping, um, and multilateral spaces. And I, I think this is relevant to, I think, the audience that is there as well, because you're mainly interested not only in, in the environmental side of business, not only in how sustainability can be carried forward by the private sector, I think your interest is also also in climate activism. So navigating multilateral spaces for me personally, because I do have experience across a variety of sectors, has become so much more than just um, supporting diplomats carry out that function of negotiating treaties and uh, being able to represent best their national interest in assemblies. And the United Nations through its uh, you know, over 50 funds agencies and programs, uh, through its overseeing role of conventions and treaties like the Chemical Weapons Convention, uh, uh, which was the case when I worked in the OPCW, um, its peacekeeping missions no longer carrying just the function of uh, maintaining a buffer zone between two warring parties, but really going into human rights and civil affairs um, and you know, sexual and gender-based violence and peacekeeping environments supporting humanitarian convoys deliver aid safely and quickly to the populations that are the most marginalized, and of course, supporting governments around the world in partnership with civil society and with the private sector to uh, put these 17 ambitious goals that we've set for ourselves uh, into practice. So navigating this multilateral space for me has been challenging. Um, you know, you would, you would think that it was a lot about having this sort of overview bird's eye view of the way the world functions and the way that states interact with each other. Um, and yet it has turned out to be much more of a problem solving function. So for example, when in 2013 I was with the OPCW, uh, it was the first time in the life of the organization that chemical weapons had been used in a conflict situation in Syria. And the problem solving then became not so much about diplomats coming together and saying we condemn or we reiterate or we take notice of, but really coming up with solutions like these weapons had to be removed from Syria and destroyed on board a ship 
in international waters. Uh, a UN joint UN and OPCW fact-finding mission had to go into Syria and find out whether chemical weapons had been used um, and you know uh, what kind of an actor might be held responsible. Those are the kind of smart regimes and mechanisms that we need to take forward in all of our work, whether it is the unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic or whether it's the next big risk, catastrophic risk that's confronting us, which is climate change. Um, we need to be smart about this, and I think multilateralism is at a as a tipping point, and it's going to evolve a lot beyond you know a relationship between states. It's going to be a lot more about the way we work with the private sector, the way we work with NGOs and civil society movements, and especially young activists and thinkers like yourselves who are just stepping into this this world of innovating and making all these multilateral goals uh, come to fruition. Thank you so much, Nabila. So interesting. Now we move on to Karina for another question. Uh, Karina, given uh, all your experience, uh, we would like to know what are the star startups for AI innovation that complement the policy efforts in achieving SDGs? Uh, so related with SDGs that uh, we talked about. Thank you so much for inviting me to share uh, some of the experience that come both from uh, running the social enterprise and you're uh, working in the UN in technology uh, and a product development. So uh, one of the most exciting uh, examples that I would like to share with the audience was how uh, data and technology is actually get, being used to measure the progress in SDGs, uh, something that not uh, many of us realize uh, on how statistical offices function in, in each country. So you would be surprised, but uh, many countries don't have a proper census data that is lasting uh, 20, uh, 30 years. And that's becoming a huge problem because no, no any of those goals, ambitious, uh, they are not, it's, it's um, sometimes it's even uh, hard to calculate the baseline. So the uh, projects that uh, are very exciting that uh, were happening in the last few years were uh, running run by uh, Innovation uh, Lab here in New York. Uh, for example, in Uganda, they use satellite imagery and computer vision to recognize the uh, roof structure of the uh, households and to determine the poverty level based on whether these are the metal roofs or you know mud roofs. So to kind of estimate the poverty rates across the different villages and, and uh, therefore forming the better response uh, function um, other cases that are pretty exciting, of course, is that um, using, again, uh, aerial uh, and satellite imagery, which is what uh, my specialization is, is in um, tracking deforestation um, across uh, uh, tropics and also understanding the sustainable uh, use of, for example, palm oil in Indonesia uh, and all this um, uh, different uh, climate change uh, risks that that it, that entail with the you know production um, level of, uh, for example, industrial uh, palm oil. Um, other cases that are exciting is of course uh, using different alternative data uh, such as mobile data to estimate the um, uh, to to um, monitor the behavior. Uh, for example, uh, again, in Indonesia, there was uh, significant use of mobile data and also bank, um, uh, anonymized bank data in order to understand the pe people's choices in the time of uh, climate mitigation and disasters uh, post-earthquake. Um, I think these are exciting and uh, the fact that um, both UN uh, is and private sector are uh, advancing in a fast pace using artificial intelligence, using blockchain uh, for um, tracking also uh, authentication of the uh, supply chains. This is exciting that UN is also getting into this and in a faster pace and the private sector, even um, innovative companies, startup companies in Silicon Valley is actively approached there. Uh, offices in uh, directly in the countries, like in Kenya, for example, uh, ministers would take trips and go to uh, Silicon Valley and call themselves Silicon Savannah in order to exchange and accelerate the different uh, social innovation 
products that private sector and UN come up with. So this is an uh, interesting time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, back to Nabila. So we wanted to ask what happens to the idea of world governance? And in your opinion, what is the future of global governance? So it's a bit of a two, two in one. It is a very interesting question. Um, what happened to the idea of world government? It's, it's an idea that, you know, has so far been in the realm of, well, two broad domains. One is international relations theory, where we get it from. So Thomas G. Weiss in his seminal essay called uh, What Happened to the Idea of World Government. Um, you know, trying to think about how we can fulfill those guarantees and promises of future generations secured from the scourge of war without actually having a world government in place. And the other place where we've seen a lot of this idea, of course, is um, science fiction. Um, but there is, I think there is some merit in, in talking a little bit about where global governance is going now. It's definitely not going in, in the direction of becoming a Westphalian state system. These were debates that we had earlier when the responsibility to protect became one of the leading peace building ideas in, in the discourse and the life of the UN, uh, especially after the crisis in Rwanda, where uh, the genocide, uh, you know, there, were, uh, there was a huge gap in the way the international community could have responded to the genocide in Rwanda and how many more, uh, you know, much more peacekeeping action could have been taken. The idea of responsibility to protect since then became an idea of do we depend on member states to contribute troops or do we set up a standing army of the United Nations? Um, again, as I said, these ideas are science fiction ideas. I don't think that, um, you know, more centralization is going to be the solution. As we've seen in the work of the multilateral system and not just the multilateral system. Um, there's a lot of talk now from emerging powers like China and India and you know, those who have not traditionally had a stake um, at the highest levels in, in the multilateral system have started talking about plurilateralism. So there, there's a lot of attention being paid to organizations like BRICS, um, organizations like you know, the Asia Infrastructure Bank that's been set up by, um, by China, for example. Um, you know, India and uh, France together have led on something called the International Solar Alliance uh, to accelerate work on climate action with the countries that are that are solar rich. Um, global governance is heading in the direction of, I think, hyper specialization in that sense. Um, you know, it's not going to be it's not going to be the same global governance that we had in 1945 and our debates aren't going to be the same. Uh, so, for example, back in 1945, when the UN Charter was signed, we were in a world that had primarily seen interstate conflict. So we were coming out of a world war. It was a huge catastrophic risk. But the kind of problems we have now and the way geopolitics looks was not something that was imaginable. It was not something that leaders at that time could fathom. We didn't know that climate change was going to be uh, not just the big, one of the biggest issues of our times, but it was going to be one of the most urgent. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us we barely have a decade left to curb temperature rises to a level that you know, otherwise would become unsustainable and run away from us. Um, today, 25% you know, of the world's GDP is trade. We're a world of 250 million migrants. Uh, we are a world where uh, civil conflict and, uh, uh, you know, kills more civilians than, than soldiers, even though we have fewer wars as, as the, you know, Steven Pinker um, uh, sort of, you know, that, that genre of theory would tell you. Um, you know, we've got the biggest companies of the world coming out, not from what was traditionally the West, but from countries like, uh, you know, the United States, well, apart from the United States, countries like Japan and Saudi Arabia actually have companies that are now in, you know, the, the, the biggest 15 top um, sort of corporates in the world. This is not the same world that we inherited in 1945. And the future of global governance, therefore, um, is not going to be about, as I said, uh, you know, when I was answering the first question about these diplomatic trade-offs. Um, when we are hit with a huge catastrophic shock like COVID-19, it is the narrow specializations, the, the, the painstaking labor we've put into the regimes, um, you know, and from across sectors, the kind of expertise that we can pull together that's going to help us mine these solutions. Um, so for example, um, 
you know, in the 1970s when the Biological Weapons Convention was first created, um, you know, that WMD weapons of mass destruction debate remained limited to the security sector. And we spoke about how successful we can be in some of these weapons themselves were the realm of science fiction. I mean, no one was really using large scale biological weapons. No one was using large scale chemical weapons when these treaties came into being. Uh, nuclear weapons have been used only once. Um, and so a little bit of this, you know, these remained far you know, security problems that were a little bit far removed from us. And yet today we have the spread of this tiny virus that came out of one small region of the world. Well, Wuhan is not small, you know, in, relative, in the relative sense of the word, but one small region of the world. And overnight, it has come to impact our entire planet. I mean, our economy is going to lose $8.5 trillion to this, um, to the impact of this. You know, half the world's uh, workforce, which is in the informal economy, is going to have their livelihoods either impacted or lost to this. And therefore, the lessons of something like the biological weapons um, experience or the chemical weapons experience, where you had verification systems, industrial safety and safeguards that, that, that are just as applicable to wet markets, uh, where you have lessons like a fact-finding and verification missions can be set up that have legitimacy from the international system to carry out uh, this work. Uh, whether, you know, there are examples like uh, containment and field hospitals that were immediately set up in cities like New York uh, in the Central Park. These are responses, security responses that have been honed and, um, you know, perfected in the security space, in the WMD space, and can now be brought into sectors like public health. Because the public health emergency has become the big new challenge, um, you know, uh, uh, and as I said in my, you know, the first question as well, the next big shock for us is really going to be climate change. And we're already seeing livelihoods are being impacted for coastal communities and those who are most marginalized. Um, conflicts like Darfur are being fought in a, in a sense because of the resources and the climate-induced um, crises in those regions. Um, and so um, world government is definitely not something that we are moving towards, uh, but global governance um, as an instrument somehow remains one of our only and best bets in the future to deal with some of these problems because they are fundamentally global problems. They are fundamentally problems that require our interconnections and the great potential we've developed just by being connected to each other on the internet like we are on, on Zoom now. And whether it's the language of development or the language of memes, um, you know, there is a language that we all understand. Uh, across the world and we need to really operationalize that and and not think about reversing this progress we've made um, as we've seen you know with with the withdrawal of uh, some countries from the Paris Agreement or the WHO. Thank you so much Nabila for your answer to this very complex question so I'm going to pass on to Laura. Karina, uh, very linked to, to Nabila's uh, explanation now uh, we would like to know a little bit more about the linkage between the climate and uh, how we can use AI tech to overcome and, and try to tackle this huge issue that we now are facing. Uh, sure. Um, so as Nab Nabila introduced uh, some of the challenges on the climate change, um, there are different frameworks that uh, uh, countries and governments putting together in order to um, achieve their carbon uh, neutral uh, production um, uh, in in next uh, decades and every country approached that differently um, and uh, specifically in Europe where you guys are calling in from uh, a lot of uh, governments uh, in EU introduced the very ambitious carbon um, low carbon targets, uh, including uh, completely dismantling uh, uh, coal uh, mines. China recently made a big announcement in the recent uh, UN General Assembly about also going um, uh, carbon neutral uh, and setting ambitious targets, provided how much production size and how much um, um, brown coal uh, has been used for, for electricity electricity in the country and this is exciting even though we we still have challenges as Nabila mentioned with the Paris Agreement and some uh, very important countries are not um, setting up uh, in uh, setting up their policies in compliance with with the with the targets but 
the, the efforts that are made uh, at the moment or uh, the goals that are set are ambitious. And what's exciting about um, technology, innovation, and private sector involvement that um, the, you know, uh, that it's not the conversation only across the policymaking um, uh, constituency and the governments. What's happening is that it graduated uh, towards um, um, millennials. So uh, something interesting that I would like to bring up. So when SDGs were set up and where the conversation were happening, it, uh, I was involved in um, advocacy and putting private sector and uh, philanthropic institutions to recognize SDGs, to mainstream in their agendas, to, uh, to uh, prioritize uh, the uh, measurement um, that uh, SDG framework sets. But it was advocacy back then, but what I'm seeing right now in a private sector, specifically in a financial sector, that it's not, long, it's not longer that um, they are doing this because you weren't advised this or because the, uh, um, it's the right thing to do or part of their PR strategy or corporate responsibility. What's in reality happening that the stakeholders, which is in, in the case of financial sector, is the asset holder of their funds that this bank bank hold and they are pushed by their actual customers actual uh, asset holders and asset under management uh, to invest into um, uh, climate change uh, friendly uh, uh, corporations climate change friendly stocks and monitor with the full transparency with the um, uh, full disclosures in the banking uh, system and uh, in the general private sector on what the companies are doing and what the governments are doing, what emerging markets um, uh, risk uh, that uh, involves the climate change mitigation and whatnot. So this is something that is absolutely exciting that uh, is um, uh, started off with the policy making and ambitious goals that UN uh, facilitated with the um, uh, collecting voices uh, from the ground, but it ends up absolutely mainstream into what currently private sector, financial sector is engaged in. And um, the, therefore the technology that uh, private sector of course bring into this is absolutely uh, fascinating. A uh, few things, um, so there's um, a new phenomenon that uh, private sector is currently engaged is called digital twin for earth. Um, again, uh, companies in, um, uh, try to understand the, the real impact on climate change, often it's still not very transparent data. And uh, when it comes to tracking deforestation, when it comes to uh, understanding uh, land uh, use uh, across uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, across South Asia, it's, it's often uh, very limited to national statistical office capacity. So uh, use the different technologies in order to, uh, to uh, track uh, from the country level all the way to the stock and uh, equity at the company level, um, the performance and uh, the climate change impact uh, is becoming uh, very useful for understanding the compliance and uh, what's, which companies are doing good and which company has a, a carbon footprint. Um, AI is being used also, of course, in um, uh, different uh, solutions that uh, involve this COVID, uh, recent COVID-19 crisis. So um, better understanding the supply chain, uh, the disruption of supply chain that has happened with the COVID, with the um, um, production of the ventilators, with the production of uh, some of the hygiene products, is dramatically, got dramatically impacted by um, by you know, closures of the borders. Now, uh, when some countries are more vulnerable than others due to their healthcare systems and what is the produce on, on the um, ground. So here, um, the modeling and using, again, um, the, the understanding of different uh, data streams that, that uh, inform us in a, a supply chain has been used uh, as a technology to better plan and understand the risk each country may have uh, if the next uh, hotspot is in there. Um, blockchain uh, technology also allows out authentication of the 
products uh, that are being used um, across supply chains when it comes to uh, humanitarian response. So all these uh, ideas uh, and all these innovations are um, mutually developed, uh, both in private sector in the United Nations and um, for the climate change in particular, I think the key for us is to um, invest a lot in uh, hardware, so use and uh, finding green energy solutions, but also uh, in a software which is like working a lot with the data and trying to understand our world better, which is still, uh, we're only in the early stages. Thank you so much. So uh, back to Nabila, can we also like to get your point of view about also the linkages between climate, global health and policy lessons, as well as a little more about global catastrophic risk and future proofing economies. So maybe respond to Karina's response to the question and then follow through with the global catastrophic risk. Um, yes, so Karina's uh, very, uh, you know, sort of well stated the, the challenge, but also the opportunity that uh, not only states and governments uh, through the UN, but also the private sector has been able to leverage to build those linkages between um, public health um, and priorities during this pandemic, but also to make that long term linkage. Um, I live in, in New Delhi, and for us, uh, the climate emergency is a public health emergency because you've all heard about the levels of air pollution um, and urban centers, you know, across Asia and across the world now are experiencing levels of air pollution uh, for which emissions are directly responsible, which are not, uh, you know, which are not sustainable as far as human health is concerned, and they are going to unduly burden the public health systems. They are going to, uh, you know, shorten the lifespans. I think on average right now, the lifespan of a person is down two years because of air pollution. Uh, you know, if you take the biggest cities. Uh, into account in that average. Um, these, I think, going forward, um, there is going to have to be a comprehensive view of One Health that, you know, uh, agencies like WHO and UNEP have been talking about a lot. You talk about human health, you talk about, uh, you know, public health, you talk about medical systems, but you also talk about environmental health. Um, and it's also very useful when you're doing advocacy to state the environmental challenge as a public health challenge. This is not just, uh, you know, about polar bears drifting off on pieces of iceberg somewhere in the north. Um, as critical as that issue is, of course, you know, our biodiversity is one of our biggest strengths as a planet uh, and our ecosystems need to be protected. So it's not to play on that lightly, but we have to start understanding climate change as a fundamentally human issue. We have to start understanding, for example, that nature um, and ecosystem services contribute half of the world's global GDP. Um, and we have to start understanding, you know, uh, the impact of climate on livelihoods, the impact of climate on civil conflict, the impact of climate on forced migration. Um, you, we are currently experiencing one of the biggest refugee crises this, this world has ever had with one of the biggest migrations. And those, all of those issues then, um, I think there was an understanding back in 2015 when the sustainable development agenda was signed on by 195 governments for the first time that development could no longer be looked at in a siloed way. So it was no longer environment, was no longer the function of the environment ministry in a government. It was no longer just the function of the UN environment program or of NGOs that worked specifically on certain aspects of, you know, saving the wildlife uh, or, you know, uh, asking industries to cut down their emissions. Climate change was going to have to be uh, not just climate action, but development in general, whether it was the alleviation of extreme poverty, the elimination of hunger, um, providing water and sanitation services to people who don't have them, had to be all be looked at within the same one interconnected multidisciplinary spectrum of development. And that is the understanding that has changed. Um, and that's what is enabling us to take these policy lessons between our organizations and exchange them with each other. So for example, now, uh, you know, going into this COVID-19 crisis, we found that where um, washing hands was the first line of defense, uh, we found that there were about 3 billion people in the world who didn't have access to simple hand washing sanitation facilities with, with clean water and soap at home. And it immediately revealed to us that people who are on the margins and people who've been left behind, or for example, when sheltering in place was a first line of defense, there was a spike in domestic violence cases, um, you know, in countries like India, but also around the world, uh, there was a report in uh, women taking on an undue 
uh, burden of unpaid care work. Um, so we, once we start looking at development as this holistic spectrum, and not only as a spectrum, but as a partnership between different sectors, it makes it so much easier to think about long-term policy. And that's the long-term policy we talk about when we say we want to build back better. You know, we hear so much of this jargon these days. There's building back better, there's new normal, there's future proofing our world uh, and to catastrophic risk or to future pandemics. And all of these lessons, I think, have been given to us in this very comprehensive and uh, you know, perfect agenda called the Sustainable Development Goals, which is not a UN agenda. It's not a UN framework. It was signed on by countries. There are voices of millions of people, especially young people, who went into making it. And it's given us the North Star um, to follow. And even in your work, especially as you go and look at the ways in which corporates and companies can really start taking this on. I mean, in countries like India and, and in other parts of the world, the private sector has now become one of the biggest players in whether it is in health, um, you know, in provision of health services or whether it is in, you know, the provision of education. And therefore, the private sector now needs to go beyond just an, an ESG sort of, uh, uh, you know, checklist, the boxes that they have to check. Uh, they need to go a little bit beyond a green building uh, and really start thinking in terms of instead of setting up a foundation, how do we build the SDGs into the core of our work? You know, climate action is going to be about so much more than just a company putting out an Instagram post that is green and saying, uh, you know, we are a climate friendly company because we set up a plant here that uses recycled material to create fabric. Um, you know, it's going to be about so much more than that. What is the impact of business on communities? Uh, whether, uh, you know, women are in the leadership position across the supply chain uh, that's so that that is all of that is going to be so much more important so when we're talking about really going forward and securing our world against the big catastrophic risks of our time that's not just future pandemics it's not just climate change which is also one of the vectors of a future pandemic you know 75 percent of all of our new infectious diseases are now coming from our unstable relationship with wildlife and how we interact with it uh, but our future uh, catastrophic risks can take the shape of the use of weapons of mass destruction and i said earlier um, again that was a debate that we were very conscious of and we had uh, a lot of and we went into how you know now it's getting into killer robots and there's going to be a lack of accountability because it's so much easier to deploy a WMD, but strategically from the geopolitical lens, that threat was low. It has never been lower than it was in our lifetimes. And now that COVID-19 has hit, uh, it suddenly become very stark to us that if somebody did want to deploy a biological weapon out of a lab, if they did want to do it, it would be so easy to bring the entire world's economies down to their knees. Um, so again, we have to start looking at the policy lessons of spaces like the security sector, like the climate action sector, and mobilize behind the outlawing of weapons of mass destruction. Um, our new big catastrophic risks could come from um, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, and other automated processes that are not necessarily intelligent, taking over our economies, taking over the way we do development. And while there is a huge you know, benefit in using big data and algorithms to do things more efficiently, we also have to watch out for its negative consequences. So for example, you know, an algorithm that, that targets uh, people who are of a darker color and becomes racist by virtue of that, um, you know, whether it's a facial recognition technology or other such identification software. Um, and so we have to be alert to the catastrophic risk of over-optimizing systems as well. And policy lessons will have to be taken from, from across the different sectors. Thank you so much, Namila. We have another two questions coming up and then we'll open it up to a Q&A. So I've just asked everyone to type in questions in the chat to have the last 15 minutes to ask questions. So I'll pass it on to Laura. Uh, now we have a question for both of you. I would ask it first, uh, Karina, to translate, and then uh, we can pass to Nabil. Uh, we saw that both of you worked together with the private sector uh, inside the UN. What were some of the main challenges and opportunities that uh, you saw in this relationship with the person? Um, thank you so much. So I was uh, actually in the very uh, center that was set up by a development program back then in Istanbul uh, for private sector development. Uh, um, and I specifically remember, I believe it was 2000. 15 when uh, Turkey was actually leading the um, G20 and one of their key agenda was inclusive business and uh, our mission was to promote inclusive business ideas 
and uh, also work on uh, specifically impact investing and uh, philanthropic investment into sustainable development. Um, I worked specifically in my project um, that we set up in 2015 on uh, impact investors and philanthropic institutions. And the key goal of the initiative was to uh, work with the, with the funds um, in a manner that instead of uh, them uh, working as, um, as they have been doing for the last uh, couple of centuries is to take their um, um, pledge agreement and understanding what um, these foundations, for example, want to target adolescent girls. And that's what they put in their profile and that's uh, how they define the strategy. What's happening on the ground very often is that when these foundations come and work uh, with Ghana or Kenya, what they do is that um, in India, we actually had uh, also um, a pilot in India back then. What they do very often is that they, they uh, work absolutely in disconnection with the government. Uh, they uh, prioritize their agenda based on their um, funds strategy versus uh, connecting and making sustainable effort and working with the subnational national governments and better understanding where this uh, SDG framework uh, then uh, further uh, project itself into a national development agenda or uh, governmental plans and fill the gap where exactly um, there is a need of help. Um, this has been successful because we were able to um, uh, work with uh, uh, several very uh, large foundations um, uh, here in the United States and uh, globally and uh, connect them directly to the government counterparts and form a, a, a structures that were never seen before that the foundations that are private institutions were participating in their um, in, as, the, as a chair role in uh, investment strategy when it comes to filling the gap in a specific SDG. Lock the opportunity for both governments to benefit from private sector coming in and not just brokering and intervening and doing something that nobody needs, like building some other schools where what you really need to invest in is training teachers, I don't know, um, uh, for, for the example, right? And then at the same time, it also uh, gave the access to many philanthropic in, uh, foundations and uh, impact investors to uh, leverage um, their funding that would not go into only uh, solutions that would last during the time of the grant or during the time of investment that would actually be uh, rooted in a very mechanism and effective in the, in the ground level. So that's some uh, interesting cases that I work with um, in private sector development. The key challenges were that this process that I described as successful was not actually very easy uh, because, again, uh, if, if the foundations, if impact investors set up their goal, it's very hard to convince them that, that if they do want to work in Ghana, they actually need to understand what Ghana needs, uh, not based on their assumptions of, of it, but what actually uh, is coming from the ground. So this has been challenging and it was a lot of um, advocacy, but it, it also introducing all these uh, complex uh, structures of United Nations, complex uh, relationships between different funds and programs, and um, even a rivalry be between the funds and program when it comes to working with this private sector involvement. This was uh, something that required a lot of um, a lot of understanding of both sides, essentially. Um, Another interesting case that I would like to uh, bring about private sector is uh, working with social entrepreneurs. Uh, and this actually inspired me to like running, uh, running the program that uh, supported social entrepreneurs uh, back in uh, Kenya and Ghana and Zambia and meeting uh, beautiful minds that with such a little funding were able to create the solutions that absolutely um, challenge the, the previous ecosystem where, where, whether the, the challenge was early childhood development or livelihood so on. So uh, innovation that brought up to us by social entrepreneurship is incredible. Um, 
very often the solutions um, um, are targeting one specific uh, little element of the problem. And here I also uh, see the great potential for the public sector, the UN organizations on the ground, as well as the government to work more closely with the social entrepreneurs because um, when you deal with the complex intertwined challenges like uh, sustainable development or poverty reduction, it's never a one thing. Uh, everything needs to be working in junction. So, uh, of course, in order for those uh, social innovations to thrive on the ground, you also need to uh, bring the policy element and uh, bringing scalability potentials on, on these different innovations. Thank you so much, Karina. And now, Nabila, answering the same questions. And now we've had questions come up in the individual chats, and then I'll start asking the questions to you. So, if Nabila, you can give us your point of view about working in the private sector inside the UN. Um, yes, not, not to take uh, too long because I think Karina has touched on some of the, the big challenges, but also the great interest that the private sector, especially social entrepreneurs, um, have taken in, in extending these SDGs in especially the most, um, you know, uh, difficult development and humanitarian contexts in the world. Um, in my work in partnering with the private sector and getting the SDGs sort of channeled through, um, it's taken basically uh, two forms in my experience, what I've seen. One is, of course, um, you know, working with businesses to get the SDGs as a framework for their um, ESG work. Um, you know, for the social responsibility work that businesses do, to how do we get them aligned with the SDG framework? How do we get, uh, you know, projects to think in a more complex and more granular way about the way development is done? So you don't just end up setting up, you know, one pilot project that doesn't then can't be scaled up or can't be taken long term, but really to, you know, um, get the government, uh, to get the corporates and social entrepreneurs and young people who are innovators who are just getting in and setting up small businesses to really work with the government um, be integrated into the great work that's already being done in countries like India. So if the government of India is doing, you know, has launched this massive, large scale housing project to build 30 million houses by 2022, um, you know, to give housing for all or a big rural electrification project that, you know, um, aims to take electric uh, electrification to every household in, in the rural areas. Uh, we need to integrate that the private sector's work and funding needs to sort of work hand in hand with that because for 1.3 billion people, you need to accelerate results very quickly. But the other part of this is, of course, to look at the private sector as the holder of finance for climate action, but also for the SDGs. Uh, we know that the funding gap of the SDGs is somewhere between five to seven trillion dollars um, that needs to be closed. And because of COVID, it's actually gotten a lot worse because everyone's now looking at recovery. And obviously, we might see some compromises being made with the climate and the SDG agenda. Um, but to close that financing gap, uh, one of the most interesting things, which was both a challenge and I think a, a huge opportunity, especially for all of you to think about, um, is how we can do innovative financing for the SDGs. So, you know, we've been playing around with things like, you know, an SDG bond, um, you know, how we can write risk into the way that companies um, and social entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists invest in uh, social development, not just as a way of, you know, not just on the assumption that we are going to lose. So this can only be a philanthropic arm of our organization because there's no profit in it, but really how to do a risk adjusted model of returns for business through which they can do um, social impact work. How can we do impact investing better? How can we take the you know, green bond model and take it into our you know, urban spaces uh, and in other issues um, that need our attention? And that's something that uh, you know, the UN is looking at, it's the private sector is also looking at, um, and it's something really, uh, um, to, to study and take forward, even as we just look at small social models, we also need to look at the way financial markets can work for the SDGs. Thank you so much, Naveena. Actually, the first question is for you. So what would you give us, can you give us tips for the listeners regarding pursuing a career fighting for climate action in a multilateral uh, organism? Um, sure. So uh, it's, um, I, I, well, for the, first of all, the multilateral space is actually very fun to work in. Um, climate 
the climate agenda is now becoming increasingly a part of all the pillars of the work that that the UN does, um, speaking just from the UN, but also the larger multilateral system. So I would start by saying that there are a lot of opportunities. It's not just, you know, in the UN environment program, but practically every part of the UN now, whether it's the development system, even the human rights system, the new human rights commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, called climate change one of the biggest human rights challenges of our time, um, has a component now uh, where you can work in climate action. Um, you know, so you, you have to find an area of interest that, you know, aligns well with your academic interest, your academic qualifications. Um, there are lots of different ways. There is a UN volunteer program. So if you're, you know, still um, studying or if you want to do something short term to try and see what an agency is like, UNB is a great place. Um, there is also great value that I have seen, um, you know, over the years um, in the UN system is that there is a lot of, I think, increasingly bosses are looking for a, a breadth and diversity of experience. So, you know, I don't think you should ever limit yourself in saying that I need to get into the UN or a multilateral system and then make my career off of there, there is a great value that is coming into the UN from the private sector. You know, if, so if you worked in data, for example, um, if you worked in, uh, you know, in a consultant, in a consultancy, uh, you know, if you've specialized in a particular area, no matter what sector it is, if you worked in civil society as a campaigner or an activist, it's really about the skill set um, that you bring. So I would say, you know, look widely, uh, you know, be confident about your skill set. Don't be afraid of applying uh, wherever, uh, you know, your your interest is. Um, and uh, yeah, it is definitely a very fun problem solving place to work in. Thank you, Nabila. I want to see if anyone in the room have, has any questions before I go to another question. I've been sent on Zoom. Do any of you have questions? Okay, we have one here. Maybe you tell me and I will keep it. Oh, we're passing around the mic. I'm gonna hold this for a bit. Uh, okay, I'll take it by mic. Uh -huh. Hi, hello everyone. Um, yeah, my question is is maybe related to um, uh, to uh, the uh, financing the emerging markets and especially uh, country, uh, countries like uh, Western Africa or, or or even Southeast Asia, for instance. Um, there is sometimes like a gap between uh, the SDG, uh, which are really important to implement, and uh, the necessity to finance local entrepreneurs. For them, it's not really about fighting climate change, but it's more about having a profitable business. As you know, the unemployment rate is skyrocketing in many countries and uh, making sure that we can uh, comply with SDG regulation is not really a priority for them. Um, so I know you are smiling, but <laughs> it's actually a, a kind of a, a big issue uh, when you work in those countries. So what are your solutions? What are your tips actually to bridge the gaps between like the, uh, the UN perspective with, uh, 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 in terms of SDG implementations and the real needs for financing uh, the local entrepreneurship. Um, yeah, Karina, you can go I and then you know, um, So uh, I think it's very um, strange to hear that uh, SDG, SDGs as priority and the actual um, business interests on the ground uh, differ. Um, if you break down SDGs, it technically covers almost every potential area of the development that may exist there. It, like it excludes the areas like indigenous people a little bit. It, it doesn't really have a very clear humanitarian development nexus, but if you break down, it's not the priority list that we put together that is like putting aside something else. And this is a priority. Mm -hmm. I was referring to a climate-related SDGs. I see. Okay. So, so, um, so, uh, in in uh, speci specifically in the framework, there is SDGs that are focusing on sustainable production, which is kind of trying to find a balance between. Okay, some of the countries actually got onto the top by accelerating their industrial innovation and and you know having a high production cycle powered by fossil fuels, whatnot, and then the others would request them to go slow from the very beginning to sustainable development from the very beginning. But um, uh, I think, uh, um, I don't know uh, specifically in the context uh, on the West Africa on this particular part, but um, what uh, the UN is putting together is that um, it's never a trade-off um, 
between uh, the accelerated industrial development at this point and if um, if uh, specifically with the COVID that uh, has been shown that the performance of the uh, solutions that, that use um, ESG framework, in, environmental sustainable uh, framework in their uh, investment and corporates that are embracing the, the framework that is more sustainable is actually uh, brought a better results. Um, if you can give a specific example, I probably would be able to elaborate more, but um, I guess one of the ideas of how to bridge the uh, priorities between sustainable development and the desire of entrepreneurs to go into accelerated business is uh, probably to uh, find um, uh, different ways for the financing that would allow them, uh, while not uh, reducing their, their, their pace and development, to introduce different techniques that would allow them to go uh, to, to have a less carbon footprints and uh, find a different policy mechanisms to uh, bring them uh, on board um, with this. Thank you so much, Karina. Navila, do you have anything else to add to this question or should I move on to the next question? Yeah, no, I think uh, Karina has covered everything. Um, just a quick point, um, like you said, there is really no trade-off. And I think that the COVID crisis that we're having now, which has also impacted uh, social entrepreneurs, it's impacted small businesses um, in developing countries, um, um, you know, in, in countries like India as well, middle-income countries. Um, but there, is, there has been an increasing realization that our vulnerabilities, our economic, our industrial development vulnerabilities, our GDP vulnerabilities to COVID-19 uh, were not caused because the stock market was doing badly. Uh, you know, those are the, the, the biggest, uh, the profit-making uh, businesses did survive. That was not why our economies are in one of the biggest recessions that we've had, uh, you know, in this century and the last. Um, the reason that happened was because, you know, it, the, the impact was felt somewhere else. The impact was felt in the people who were in the informal economy, people who lost their jobs, people who were dependent on, you know, um, climate intensive sectors, um, people who were in small businesses, in MSMEs that didn't have enough support. Um, so really, I think um, increasingly, you know, and, and that's impacted even, you know, at the level of government, at the level of the biggest businesses. So going forward, I think uh, it'll become even clearer that that trade-off, um, you know, needs to be reconciled when, when um, entrepreneurship happens in these countries. Thank you, Navila. Does this answer your question, Luis? Okay, great. Unfortunately, people have to go to the next class. So this is the end of this panel, but we wanted to thank you so much, both of you, for this incredible participation, Tindabila and Karina. Uh, since everyone's muted, we can't clap. But uh, thank you so much. And anyone, if you want to maybe work at the UN or have a conversation about uh, the programs that are in place after an MBA, of course, you can contact both Nabila and Karina. And this will be recorded and put on our podcast. If you some things you didn't catch, or if you want to send it to some friends. So thank you so much from Laura and I, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Navila. Thank you, Karina.